0: Okay. Um we've got a lengthy reading this morning, but we're um primarily when I get to the, the actual message we're primarily going to be focusing in on Genesis eleven one through nine. But um we're gonna read Genesis ten. So beginning in verse one, Genesis ten one through eleven. Nine. We need to get all that together, and and, um, what is Genesis ten is what is often called the Table of Nations. And what is fascinating here, of course, there there are some things as as part of the storyline that we're dealing with here that I'll be trying to point out. But one of the one of the fascinating things here is just that this is where everybody comes from, and uh, I'm not going to take time um, like to break this down for you where everybody winds up. I'm, I'm going to give you some generalizations. But, but it's easy to find material. Like if you look at a study Bible or if you just Google it, you know, the Table of Nations and, and you'll, you'll come up uh, um, usually with some charts and maps that show you, you know, um, where the, uh, the, the at least the ones that we know about, where the, where the descendants of Ham wound up, where the descendants of Shem wound up, where the descendants of Japheth wound up, and who are the the modern nations that descended from them. That kind of material is easy to find, and if, especially if you look at a good study Bible, something like the ESV study Bible or MacArthur study Bible or the uh, Zondervan NIV study Bible or something like that. Uh, or, as I said, you can also uh, Google it. You just have to be more careful about the sources there, but it will come up with tons of information. But it's just interesting to see, um, and I, like I say, I'm going to give you a little bit of it, just some generalizations, and, and then try to talk a little bit about how that ties into the main storyline. So, Genesis 10, and if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll read, and then pray, and uh, I guess I'll tell you up front, you kind of you, you want to notice um, Nimrod. Moses highlights some things about Nimrod. And Aber, or Eber, or however you want to pronounce it, um, when you hear that name. Those are a couple that stand out. But Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth: Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagormah, The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dedanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush. Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtica, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Resen, between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftahim, Pathrusim, Kasaluhim, from whom the Philistines came and Capitorium. Uh, and, Capitorium. and then verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Ar- Arvadites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zobaim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpoxed, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpoxed fathered Shela, and Shela fathered Eber. Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad. Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzzel, Dikla, Obal, Abamael, Sheba. Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations, from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 11.1 Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people... And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from there over the face dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for your word. We ask that you bless this reading um, and this study. Open up our understanding, Father, that we may see uh, the things that you would have us to see and grasp here, that we, that we may better understand your ways, your promises, uh, and how you are faithful to them, that we may better understand your providential workings throughout history in order to call a people to yourself and save us, deliver us from sin. For Your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, I'm uh, kind of trying to stay with the big picture here because we could we we could spend a lot of time on the facts of, of Chapter 10 and how that all fleshes out. And as I said, I'm just going to give you a few things there and try to show how it ties into the main storyline and brings us over in, into chapter 11. In other words, what it has to do with chapter 11, what it has to do with the previous chapters, what it has to do with the whole narrative of Genesis and of the whole Bible. So let me just say in terms of immediate context, this is, this is uh, everybody knows, it's been here, but this is immediately following the flood. Um, and it's a, what Moses is doing here is giving us an account of uh, what happened with um, the descendants of Noah, or the, you could say the descendants of his three sons. And there's a, an inclusio here that I want you to notice, uh, inclusio like, uh, being like bookends. And uh, let's just back up a little bit from prior to where we started a moment ago. Look back in chapter 9, verse 19. And again, this is immediately following the flood. Verse 19 says, These three were the sons of Noah, and they're, mentioned, they're named in verse 18, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed from these, from these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now that's what Moses is tracing out here in uh, in in verse uh, or in chapter ten. But there's the first book in, verse nineteen. Now, look over at chapter ten, verse thirty two, and you see real similar wording at the end of the verse. This is a second book in. From these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So what Moses is doing from chapter 9, verse 19, over to chapter 10, verse 32, is, is showing us how the nations were born out of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And he gives us some specifics in terms of their... Uh, their um, uh, descendants, because remember, just like we've been saying before, um, when Moses is writing this, first and foremost, he's going to have in mind his, his contemporaries, right? The, the, the people that he's living with in that day. And so he's talking to them about uh, history, about the origin of all things, how God created all things, and how God brought the nations into being. And so many of these people that are listed here uh, you recognize, if you know much about the Old Testament, you recognize as enemies of Israel, right? And so Moses is, is, um, is giving some history to the people and showing how how these nations, how these ethnic groups came about. Now, at the same time, he's, he's highlighting a division between the people of the world and the people of God. Two kingdoms, you might say, right? The kingdom of the world... Kingdom of God. Uh, everybody who's, in fact, we can take it to its ultimate end because this is where it winds up in the end of the Bible. Everybody who's outside of Christ and everybody who's in Christ. Everybody who's outside the church, everybody who's in the church. The people of God, the people of the world. And you, and you really see this um, come to its... Uh, uh, um, climax or, or fullness in the book of Revelation uh, where that where that distinction is finally uh, made, right? And and the people of the earth are commonly referred to in the book of Revelation as the, uh, well, in the English transla- translation, it's usually something like those who dwell on the earth. Uh, literally, it's the down dwellers, but, you know, those who dwell on the earth. And then the people of God are, are of course, those who are saved, um, by the, uh, by the work of Christ. Um, they overcame by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb, right? So you got that division, and we've already been talking about that some. We, we, we saw it with Cain and Abel. We saw it um, with the lineages of Cain and Seth, the lineage of Cain representing the wicked or the evil people of the world, lineage of Seth representing the people of God, and we saw it with Noah and his generation, the big contrast. So, th- so this continues, and it's going to continue all the way through the Bible, and uh, we see how it um, works out uh, in light of the gospel when you, when you get over into the New Testament. And Lord willing, here in a few minutes, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. But for now, um, that's what I think Moses is doing here, is giving his people some, some history and showing where these other peoples came from and the distinction between them, the Hebrew nation, and the other peoples of the world. All right. So this is this is after the flood, after the world has been purged um, because of its because of the evil of um, man. In fact, chapter seven, verse twenty-three says, "Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark." But even though the world has been purged, sin is still present, isn't it? And we've seen evidence of that already. In fact, when God gives the covenant um, to never again drown the world and uh, the sign of the covenant, which is the rainbow, back in, in chapter 8, verse 21, look back there for just a moment, he's, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, uh, that is from, from Noah's offering, he said in his heart, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, we saw similar language to that back in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But that verse, back in chapter 6, verse 5, is before the flood... And this verse in chapter 8, verse 21, is after the flood and the Lord's assessment is very similar. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, the point I'm making there is sin didn't go away with the flood. Noah and his family were sinners saved by grace, right? (laughs) Saved from the wrath of God by grace. The grace of God. So, um, even though we've had this purging, sin remains, and we're, we continue to see evidence of that as we move on in the in the story as well. Uh, so, here we're given an account of what happened with the the, the nations following the flood, um, with what happened with the descendants of Noah, how the nations emerged, and how, through divine providence, they were dispersed throughout the earth. Um. I want to mention a couple of things here. Let's let's go back for a moment, chapter 10, verse 5. First, you have the sons of Japheth listed. And then, verse 5 says, From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, talking about around the the Mediterranean. And then, um, the sons of Ham. That starts in verse six, sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and remember, uh, Ham was the one who sinned against Noah, and because of that, Canaan, the descendant of Ham, uh, son of Ham, Canaan was was cursed. Um, there, the descendants of Ham. Essentially, what you have is the Egyptians, Babylonians, Philistines, uh, and other. Canaanite groups. Um, and that's, by the way, if you look on a map, I mean, that's, that's pretty dispersed. It's a large area. You think North Africa and then Assyria and Babylon, where, where many of the sons of Ham migrated. And then Shem. Shem is where we get the, uh, na- the, the term Semitic or Semite. So Shem is the direct um, ancestor. Of uh, Semitic peoples, like like Israel, Israel for one, and and we're gonna we're gonna see that um, Shem is the line from which Abraham descends. Now, in the in the big picture, this is important because again, we're thinking about the distinction between all the peoples of the world and God's people, and how God is calling out a people to Himself. So we've already been from Seth, now down to. And then, and then to Noah and his three sons, now down to Shem, and then it's going to work its way, the lineage is going to work its way from Shem down to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then eventually down to Jesus, right? And that's, the, that's the lineage of the promise, that where the, the, the promise of, uh, well, that actually started with Genesis 3.15, where, where God promises the serpent crusher, that promise keeps get, getting handed off to these different ones down through this line. So we'll be able to follow much of that as we uh, move through the book of, of Genesis. So um, Shem, ancestor of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Jesus, so forth, um, notice in his line is mentioned Eber, who I, I told you to watch out for earlier. Uh, and interestingly, Eber is Shem's great-grandson, but he's mentioned before his sons, which tells us something. Uh, you know, Moses is highlighting something there. And Eber is where the, the term Hebrew uh, derives from. And again, he's the direct uh, ancestry to Abraham. And of course, Abraham is father of the Hebrew, Hebrew uh, nation. And Abraham, and then down through Jacob. Who is called Israel? so uh, I'll just read you a little bit of a of a note here from a ESV study Bible. It says the designation Hebrew is derived from Eber. So um, by way of underlining his importance, readers are informed that he that he called one of his sons Peleg. another thing which I wanted you to notice. in fact look down here in verse twenty five in fact, there's a couple of things here um, that, that kind of help us flow into verse into chapter 11. Look in verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Now, I think what that's talking about, what Moses is talking about there, when he says in the days of Peleg the, the earth was divided, I think what he's talking about is the people of the earth. So what he's talking about is what happens in chapter eleven, verses one through nine. I'll come back to that and try to make that a little clear in a moment. And then back up again to, and uh, in the case with Nimrod, look back at verse ten, ten, ten. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So Nimrod, who was the son of Ham, became a uh, one of the, the first of the mighty men, and he built cities, and he built. Uh, beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and also Nineveh. Both of those are, are great uh, cities uh, from history. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian kingdom. Babylon, of course, was the cap- Babel. Rather, was the capital of Babylon, of course, and it's where the Tower of Babel was erected. That's in modern Iraq. So, if you look at ten. Uh, 10.10, 10. the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then look over at 11.2. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. So both of those places, the land of Shinar is uh, is mentioned. So it's what Moses is doing here. He's going to get to the story of the Tower of Babel. So he tells us, you know, that, that began with Nimrod uh, building uh, building there. And then you've got similar uh, down in the case with um, Peleg, in chapter ten, verse twenty-five, the earth was divided in his days, and I think Moses is about to go into the to the story in eleven one through nine, and so it took place. I think is what he's saying. It took this. What happens in verse in chapter eleven, verses one through nine, took place in the days of Peleg. It's when the people of the earth were divided. Now. In in our remaining time here, um, what I want us to do is look at what I think Moses is highlighting here, the sinfulness of man, the pride of man, in trying to define himself apart from his creator. And if you just think about that statement for a minute, Man attempting to define himself apart from his creator. That, um, if you pick up a a, well, start to say pick up a newspaper. I guess well, that's old school, isn't it? Um, You know, you go to Facebook, (laughs) you you check your news feed on Facebook, Twitter, CNN, Fox, or turn on your cable channel or whatever. And you might be tempted to think that this concept of self-identity is something new. That people deciding, you know, I'm, I'm going to decide who I am and everybody else is going to have to deal with it. Um, that that is something new. It is a hot issue at present. And it's not going to go away. And specifically the way that it's manifesting now uh, and again, the thing itself is not new. It just manifests in different ways. But specifically, the way it's manifesting now is with this whole um, LGBT movement, um, lesbian, gay, transgender movement. Uh, or you could just say, you know, the, the, uh, this whole new sexual revolution, right, where people define even, at least this is what we're told, people define what sex they are, male or female. So, I mean, there's really no, at least according to what the world is telling us now, there's really no objective way to tell. It depends on what the person thinks they are. And I know plural pronouns are not appropriate there, but you almost have to do that to use their language. Because if I say he or she... That already doesn't make sense from their perspective, right? Makes perfect sense, but not from their perspective. So, um, and so you got this whole thing about self-identity, and and what they're doing is precisely trying to define themselves apart from the Creator. In other words, God has created us one way. Like, let's just stay with sex for a minute. God has created us either male or female. That's not something that you or I had any choice in. So God's created us one way, but what we're being told now is that that's not what really matters. What matters is what you think you are. And and, I heard a story just this week, and this is not a joke about a guy in in Britain. In fact, I heard two different ones, but one was a guy in Britain who decided to self-identify as a goat. And he did everything, I guess, pardon the pun, humanly possible um, to transform himself into a goat. And he tried to learn everything he could about them so he could think like a goat and act like a goat and live like a goat. And, uh, of course, you know, you can imagine, long story short, that hasn't gone real well. I think he's got a book out, and so that's not very goat-like right there, um, writing a book about your experience. So it hasn't, it hasn't panned out all that well. But just this whole idea of self-identity is born out of um, a desire to be autonomous. We don't want to be dependent on anybody. We don't want to be accountable to anybody. We don't want anybody... Making decisions for us, man is demanding total autonomy. I will decide if I'm male or female. I will decide how I live and how I die, even. It's part of the whole concept of assisted suicide today is and people claim that that's dignity. give them the dignity to decide how they die. It's the desire to be autonomous, totally self-governing. Well, that's not a new attitude. (laughs) And that's what we see here. So, I want to remind us of something here. Um, Back in chapter 1, God creates man. And He creates man in His own image. And in 1 verse 26, and we've already made reference to this several times. We'll do it again here. Probably we'll do it more in the future. God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And by the way, some, some people still recognize this distinction. You know, we're created in the image of God. With all of the craziness out there and with all the insanity, some people still recognize this distinction and they... And they—I don't know whether they're Christians or atheists or what—but um, they cannot avoid it. So there was a major news story this past week, or maybe it was the end of last—I think it was the end of last week or first of this week. The boy and the gorilla, and the, the zookeeper shot the gorilla, not the boy. Why is that? And just a few days prior to that, they had a similar incident in Chile where a man tried to commit suicide and jumped into the lion exhibit. And same thing, the zookeepers shot the lions, which they highly valued, by the way. And the same way with the gorilla in Cincinnati. It was an endangered uh, species, lowland silverback, highly valued by the zoo. And yet they shot that gorilla to save a boy. And like I say, I don't, I don't know anything about the individuals involved and what they believe, except that they obviously value human life above animal life, even very valuable animal life. And even those, those, those were sad, tragic stories in some ways, it was good news in that way <laughs> that they would do that, shoot the gorilla, not the boy shoot the lions, not the man. And that distinction is legitimate because we're created in the image of God and after His likeness. And so he goes on to say in verse 26, 126, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, of all over all the earth and over the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And here it is, verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. So, God creates man, and He gives them a charge, a mandate. In other words, this is God's God's will, God's revealed will, His purpose for man. Fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And we talked about that when we were in chapter 1 and 2. Why did... God want man to fill the earth. Well, I think precisely because man is created in the image of God and we mirror God in some ways, we are like Him in some ways, and so the the idea is to fill the earth with little images of God. If you get the earth filled with people, what you've got is little image bearers, God image bearers. Filling the earth. So, in that sense, the earth is filled with the glory of God. So, there's the command, there's the mandate, there's the charge, there's the will of God stated. Fill the earth. And then you get to the flood in chapter 8 and uh, 7 and 8, and you get the same. In fact, uh, let's look at the end of chapter 8. The very end of chapter, um, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 17, the very end of verse 17. Be f- fruitful and multiply on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God gives the same charge to Noah that he gave to Adam, look at chapter nine, verse one, and God blessed Noah, in fact, the language here is almost, almost the same as 126 or 128, I'm sorry. He's, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." So God commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God commanded Noah, fill the earth. God commanded Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth." Now, you get to chapter 11, and this is beginning to happen. Or it is in the process of happening, I should say. It's already begun, but it's in the process of happening. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, so notice that. People are multiplying. We just saw that in chapter 10, right, with the... the, Um, all of the descendants of the three sons of Noah. People are multiplying, and 11-2 tells us they're migrating. So wherever Noah and his sons got off the ark, there's debate about that. I I did find it interesting. I don't put a lot of stock in this uh, uh, turkey story. Uh, You know, many, many years ago, they claimed to have found something that looks like the Ark in Turkey, but it's in such a remote area that's covered over with ice and all that that they can't get to it. And, of course, and the story used to be during the Cold War, people would say, well, they can't get up there because it, it overlooks part of Russia, and, uh, you know, we couldn't go up there without having a war. Of course, Cold War is long over now. Um, but I did find it interesting uh, that they've, they've, they've never proven that one way or the other. Uh and I'm not trying to give it credit, I, it's probably nothing, but they said it, it's probably a rock formation. But, but they they see this thing sticking out of the mountain up there, it looks like a big arc, and, or the possibility that it could be a big arc. And uh, just because it is frozen over in ice and in such a remote area, they've never been able to uh, confirm one way or the other. Just interesting. But um, that mount that it sits on, whatever it is, rock formation or whatever it is, is the traditional site that people... Claim, that's Mount Ararat, so it's called that to this day. And that's where the ark came to a rest and where Noah and his family got off. Now, I don't know whether that's accurate or not, but wherever it, it did come to rest on a mountain that it, at least at one time was called Mount Ararat, whether it's the same one or not, I don't know. And they got off, and what 11 1 and 2 is telling us from there, wherever there was, From there, they began to spread out. And it was in the east. So, from the east, they migrated. So, they're they're doing what God said to do. But, here's where the problem arises. In verse 2. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. And again, that's modern-day Iraq. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, you, you can read it's easy to read over that without noticing a problem at all because it's just like a it's a historical account, right? I mean, Moses is just telling us what happened. And that is true. It is a historical account. But there's a problem with that word settled. Settled there. Because they're under a mandate To fill the earth with the glory of God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Not just be fruitful and multiply. Not just have a lot of babies, go somewhere and have a lot of babies. Fill the earth. So you you can't do that unless you're moving, spreading out. And they decided that it was in their best interest to do just the opposite and settle. And so whether, um, this seems to me to just be blatant disobedience. But whether they're doing it, you know, as just blatant disobedience or they just forgot or, or whatever, they just don't care, uh, complacency or whatever, whatever the motivation, they are disobeying the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill The earth. And so they settled in the plain of Shinar. And if that weren't enough, I mean, he gives us some more insight here to their attitude. They said to one another, verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, now, now, by the way, building—you know—back in chapter ten, we're told Nimrod was the first mighty man and mighty hunter, and he and he uh, began his kingdom with Babel and then uh, um, Nineveh. There's there's nothing inherently wrong with building, but it's why are you building? In fact, in fact, building is a good thing. It's because. God is being imaged there. He's being mirrored. When when you're creating things, when you're building things, when you're being productive, that is one way of reflecting the character of God and glorifying God in the process. And Moses doesn't tell us about Nimrod's motivation, so I don't know if his was good or bad back in chapter 10, unless, of course, he was uh, involved in this. The people here, their motivation is bad. So they say, come let us build ourselves, notice that, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. You see, that raises a question, why are you building? And for whom are you building? I uh, try to read a lot of material... Um, I, don't, I don't read a lot. I don't have time to read a lot, but I try to read a pretty good bit of material um, on things like church planting and and uh, and church growth and that kind of thing. Um, and I try to pick really good stuff. I'm not just talking. In fact, this is my point here. I'm not I'm not just talking about like getting large numbers, but but actually um, sp- spiritual growth taking place. And then from that, working out from that, reaching yes numbers by reaching people in evangelism. Um, so anyway, I mention that just to say this: we have to ask ourselves as as Christians, because we often we often talk about building things for the glory of God, or you know building whether it's building a building, or building a congregation, or or whatever it is. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why? Or even, even when we have a, uh, an organization like this, the local church, which is in, in, our, in our setting, in our culture, is not just a gathering of people, but it's also an entity recognized by our government. So it's similar to, what's an incorporation? It's similar to, uh, it in it's, it's similar to a, uh, a business, right? So we have an organization as well as an organism, the organism is us, the people. You know, we're the, we're the body of Christ knit together in the unity of the Holy Spirit. The organism is this entity that we function in and that we, um, that we govern uh Fillmore Baptist Church, right? And we have to ask ourselves, Why? Why sustain an organization? Why build a building? Or why even gather as a people? Even if we were gathering in a living room somewhere, why even gather as a people? Is it just is it just to have community, some some form of community, some form of, of gathering that's an important question. Why? Well, I can tell you what their answer was. They were doing it for their selves. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. I mean, this may, this may not seem like uh, a big thing here. Oh, well, Moses is talking about history, and he's recording how people began to build cities and towers and things. But what has happened is they've dropped the main motivation. Building for the glory of God. Existing for the glory of God. What is happening is is they are ignoring the purposes of God in pursuit of their own. You notice in the bulletin, I put a title there, The Right Pursuit, and a subtitle, Living the Purpose of God. As Christians, we have to be committed to living the purpose of God. Living it out. Not just when we get get together on Sundays or something like that, but every day in the workplace, the school, in the home, in the grocery store, living out the purposes of God. Why why do we do what we do? Why do we build what we build, whether it's a church or whether it's a house? Why do we own the things that we own? Why do we buy the things we buy, sell the things we sell? Why do we do anything that we do? Is our Goal, our motivation, the pursuit of God's glory. Well, again, I can answer for them because we have it recorded right here. For them, it was not the pursuit of the glory of God. In fact, just the opposite. Look at what it goes on to say. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You get that? That's why I said earlier, this is blatant disobedience. God had told them to fill the earth, and now they're saying, look, let's settle here, let's build a city, let's build a tower, make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. They are trying to create an identity for themselves that has nothing to do with the Creator. There's no concern here for the glory of God. There's no concern here with imaging God's character. There's no concern here with fulfilling God's purpose. There's no concern here with building God's city. Interesting, they say, let us build a city for ourselves. You get over in the book of Revelation and how is the church and the the, uh, eternal state of God's people described. A city. But there's the city of God. The city of God. Everybody who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ is included in the city of God. We, the church, and again, I'm not talking about the organization, but the people, the organism. We are part of the city of God. Residents, citizens of the city of God. Which is which exists for his glory, for his name to be proclaimed. But what they want to do is make a city for themselves and make a name for themselves for their own glory. They're pursuing self-glory and a and a self-created identity which is totally opposed to the purpose of God. Now, here's good news. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And His purposes are not going to be thwarted. So God intervenes. And, and by the way, you've got a unity here. Imagine this. All the, all the people in the world speaking one language. That's the way it was. So everybody could communicate. And so they are able to come together and work together and pursue this selfish. Goal. And God determines to put a stop to it. In verse 6, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What a statement that is. And by the way, He says, This is, this is only the beginning. Does, does not our day bear that out? I mean, doesn't this, this whole concept of self-autonomy, self-identity, resisting the purposes of God, doesn't it just seem to take on... I mean, it just gets... It seems like it just takes on worse forms as it takes on new forms. And you can look back and say, wow, yeah, this is, this is just the beginning. I mean, they were just building a tower, not trying to declare sex in contradiction to their own physical reality and emotional reality. So the Lord says in verse 7, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them. Catch that, because back in verse 4, the whole idea was lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So the Lord, verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. He did it by confounding their languages so that they could not communicate. Verse 9 says, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language, the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So God gave a mandate, fill the earth. They refused to fulfill the mandate. And so God providentially intervened. And once again, it's back on track. And why is that important for us? Well, I have to give you the sharp form here because you keep on reading in Genesis and you keep on reading in the Bible and you find what I was talking about earlier, that what God is doing uh, as people are spreading across the globe and as ethnicities are coming into being and nations and so forth, God is is creating people, Paul says in Acts 17, to seek after Him. And simultaneously, he's, he's He's calling out a people from among all the nations, creating a people to Himself for His own glory, a body of believers. Now, let me mention two things, and we're dismissed here. One, a new unity and a new dispersion. Prior to this, and we just, we just read, they had unity because they all spoke the same language, right? And God divided them by confusing their languages. Well, now we have a new unity, Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, where all nations, all ethnicities are brought together in unity through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, what was done at Babel, the dividing of the nations, is undone in Jesus, where He gathers the nations. And that is typified or pictured or um, foreshadowed, uh, uh, foretasted, I guess you could say, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What happens in Genesis 11? God comes down and confounds their languages so that they can't understand each other. What happens in Acts chapter 2? God comes down and enables them to hear each other even though they're speaking different languages they can understand. And that's just a foretaste because there's a real unity in Christ. Unity among all believers. A unity that crosses all boundaries. Boundaries of nationality, ethnicity, social status, all unified. Those walls come down and we're unified through faith in Jesus Christ. And the fullness of that reality, of course, we will know when we get to the other side. But that, too, we have a foretaste of now. It's a reality now. It's just we don't have the fullness of it yet. And there's a new dispersion as well. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? I thought you said God was uniting. Well, He is, but at the same time, He's uniting us in Christ and at the same time dispersing us among the nations to preach the gospel. So before the nations were being created and scattered, now the nations are there. And when I say nations, I'm, I'm thinking in the biblical sense, People groups. People groups. And a lot of times what we call a nation or, or, a, uh, or a continent, you know, say Africa or North America, you've got thousands of people groups. A guy that I knew once served in Papua New Guinea, and I'm not sure how big that land area is, but um, most of the languages that exist in the world are right there in Papua New Guinea. Thousands, those native tribes there, Thousands uh, of people, and then they speak hundreds of different languages. So the nations are there, and the new dispersion is God is sending out His people, Christians, to take the gospel to the nations. And you know what's ironic? In Acts, oh, you get chapter four, chapter five, and you find that they did the Christians did pretty much the same thing. They just kind of settled in Jerusalem. And so God had to disperse them, <laughs> get them going. And he brought persecution on the church in Jerusalem, and the Christians basically had to flee for their lives. But when they did that, they carried the gospel out to the nations. And we, we, we're still under that mandate to take the gospel. And the nations includes Fillmore. And it includes Moganye and Ethiopia and every people group in every continent, every continent that has people on the face of the earth. We're still under that mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Or in the New Testament it's stated something like this, Right? As you go, make disciples of every nation, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's God's will. That's a purpose worth pursuing. Our identity is grounded in our Creator. And our purpose for being and living and doing should be His purpose. We live for His glory. Would you stand, please? Father, again, we thank You for this time together today. and Lord, thank You for including us in what You are doing. And we pray for Your wisdom, uh, as always, that we may be uh, effective as... uh, witnesses to those around us, and that we may be real in our relationship with you, living in obedience to you as you have commanded us to do, pursuing your purpose for our lives, not our own, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.